Hello and welcome to the Vlogging Pod. Tonight is our second night in a three podcast event with K.L. Collins, the series The Hadron Legacy. And I hope I didn't mess that wording up there. <laughs> no, you said it just fine. Awesome. Yay! <laughs> Um, my pronunciation, I know I've told you this before, but I'm telling you, whoo. Ah, anyways. <laughs> okay, so last time we chatted, um, I had wanted to speak with the characters, but I fully understand because the author, as the author, sometimes it's hard to do that on a verbal standing. It's easier for us to type it in interviews when we can play I, our characters. I make a better script writer, yes. like a better screenwriter than I do an actor. I got you, I got you. And as an author, I fully understand that. So tonight I wanted to take a different approach to um, our interview tonight. Um, through all your books, and you can... You can find KL. I put a link in the room. Um, when this gets reposted, I'll make sure I put a link out again to the book because she is really good at world building. And all your reviews <laughs> always say that. And you you are. You are very good um, about the world building and everything. You just, it's just so in depth. It really is. So tonight, I thought what we would do is since last, last time we spoke to Lucia. And tried to get more in depth about her personality and her background and everything. So tonight I thought, now again, I hope I get the name right here. Is it Zathian? <laughs> it's Zathan, yeah. Zathan, okay. Zathian, his world. So we're going to talk tonight about Zathan. My first question of the evening. Oh, and I almost forgot my timer. Better do that before I forget. <laughs> oh, there we go. Start it's fine. Th That's our habit. <laughs> Start that right off. Um, I just, I'll be honest with you. I get very excited to talk with you. Um, it's one thing Aww. to, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it's not my girl crush, I swear, but um, <laughs> it's virgin on it. But you, the way you speak about your books, I find it really it, it just, I don't know, it pulls me in. I, um, to be honest with you, I think you would be great at reading your own book for an Audible because I think that would be freaking fantastic. You just... I, I am like you, though. I have a hard time pronouncing my own words sometimes. So there were a few pronunciations that my, my narrator, my audiobook reader, James, he would question, you know, should he pronounce it this way or that way? And I would actually prefer his pronunciation because I have such a horrid Michigander accent that I always joke that I sound like I should be in a Sudafed commercial. So <laughs> that's why I hired James. Well, this would be a horrible time to tell you that I am a narrator. But <laughs> um, let's just say when I read, if there's something I'm not familiar with, I highlight it. I ask Google. I, you know what I mean? I re-record or whatever I need to do to make sure I get it right. But that's a whole other yeah. issue. <laughs> that was probably not the best time to bring that up. Anyways, so... Let's talk about the geography and nature around Zathian. Um, what are we seeing? I mean, are, is it forest, tropical, grassland, plains? Um, what kind of environment are we looking at when we look at Zathian's um, home, home, his whole area so of the region? Zathan is an interesting character because as as at, when you meet him, he's he's Alhadron, so he's like the up and coming. Hadron, the up-and-coming ambassador to his house, which is Derekai. 
And so the second book, House of Derekai, um, is really dedicated towards his story in a lot of ways. But in his upbringing, he had more of, of um, what would be considered a classical Hadrian's upbringing, where half of his time was spent in Bastion, in the where the Crown City is, um, getting to know people that he would have later political affiliations with. Um, he, he grew especially close to the prince at the time, uh, whereas Lucia was very isolated. She has a different upbringing for different reasons. Um, but his home house, like his home territory, right. Derekai, um, is in the south. And I imagine that it looks a lot like the mountains in Chile, like like very lush um a lot of red rock and that was inspired by i always loved going to sedona as a kid so take the desert aspect away but keeping the red rock and then giving it not quite towards rainforest but just a very lush um nearly tropical um plant life and so i wanted um a really um, characteristic rock to the area because I always knew for some reason, I always knew that I wanted his people, the Dorakians, to dwell in the rock. Um, I loved seeing, again, as a child um, out west, I loved seeing the Mesa Verde um, and everything that the Anasazi or whoever built it before them constructed in the cliff sides. So I imagined the cliff sides being this multi-story city um, inside of a canyon that's in their main city, Faraji, and, um, but just kind of overgrown with lush uh, flora. And so um, it really was a cool place, a very, very unique place to um, build upon in the second book when they actually travel there. Um, there's a lot of cultural um, practices that I got to, um, to curate and really, really embellish upon. Um, landmarks, certain landmarks that have histories to them, some of them quite brutal. Um, it was, I'm not going to lie, I had a lot of fun spending time in that region. And I, and still to this day in my writing, I miss it. I miss my characters being there. Nice. So let's describe, I mean, we talk about Derekai being very lush and tropical. So would that climate be such as like um, rainforest or it'd be just like... A... I would say n like near rainforest. They, they wouldn't receive enough rain for it. Um, that's why I can't call it. And I didn't in the books. I didn't call it a rainforest because um, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a rainy place. Okay. It's just a very, very lush. That's why I keep thinking like the best thing I could describe would be like... But now Chile has rainforests in it, um, right. but but when you think of like the mountains in Chile, they're always covered in green. Um, they're very mountainous, but they're also very green. And so I just wanted there to be enough rock that they could chisel into it and create this like skyscraper city. Okay. So when you talk about there being a lot of rock, where do you, what do you see as the natural resources pulling out of Derekai? Um, well, like I said, they have like that red rock, but most of their natural resource in terms of like, other than food, like other than their basic crop, um, their natural resource, like their, their mode of commerce, if you will, is their manpower. So okay. they make up the majority of the armed forces in the Arinthian realm. So they, in their treaty, in that house's treaty, uh, their accord with Bastion, they pay, um, homage to the throne and uh, for protection, for added resources, for all those things. And in return, they send their warriors, their 
they're basically called the house of war. So they send their warriors to join the larger armies and they comprise most of them. Um, and then they also have these militia prides that monitor different regions of the, of the shared territory. Um, and Zathan, apart from being an up and coming Hadrian, um, he also in his kind of waiting time, he has another title in the military and that is um, of Alphazah. So he's over all of the little military prides. Okay, and this is Zathan, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, so he has a dual role, unlike Lucia. Okay, all right. So, um, as referred, so, so, so their resources is basically their military aspects. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are they are a, the, a very brutal house. Okay. So what kind of, um, I mean, do they have military animals? It's kind of horses or what kind of? Yeah, they are, um, they're known as horse, like horse uh, men, horse breeders. Um, they, there's a, in the foothills on the map, there's a uh, area called Holona, and that would be more of a hill, a foothill region. And um, that's where they breed a lot of their Andouille stallions. The, the mountain range is called the Andouilles. So they have like mountain stallions that come out of that region. And they're in, in the, in the world, they're, they're quite prized. You, you know why I, I really wanted to take this type of aspect with your interviews? <laughs> Do you have any idea? No. <laughs> you have a glossary to your books. Mm-hmm. And that is what I yeah, found. Yeah, it is. It's massive. Um, so yeah. this is why I wanted to take this type of um, interview as to breaking it down. So if you were a novelist, and I mean, come on, this would be awesome to come in, talk to the <laughs> author, find out about the world, and then dive into the book that has this glossary of depth, in-depth world. I mean, I'm serious, guys. If you are into world building, you have got to look up this series. And if you don't know, if you can't read it from the profile, it is the Hadron Legacy. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It is the Hadron Legacy. There's a couple books in the series. And I'm telling you guys, this is the only thing that I can characterize this to is, um, oh, geez, my husband was into this series. And for the life of me, it's popping off the top of my head. It was an HBO series. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about, right? You mean Game of Thrones? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Um, so- yeah, I, I feel like it's it, there's that feel to it. There, It's in terms of I often, if I had to put it into like a very brief synopsis, I usually just tell people that the Hadron Legacy, more than anything else, is a political fantasy. There are magical elements. There are um, different allegorical elements. There are, There's a lot of character development, all these other tropes and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it is a massive, sprawling world, and it is meant to be an immersive experience. And the major tensions are between people groups, and that's reminiscent of Game of Thrones. I don't have dragons, um, and I don't have steam in the book, but I do have a lot of um, innuendo, though. I love dirty jokes. <laughs> <Yes>. but, um, <laughs> but it's mainly this whole idea of who has more power. The person sitting on the throne, because my I the the person on the throne or who will um, adopt the throne is not a main character. Um, they're a main side character, but they're not a main POV. And so it's the question of who has more power. The person reigning from the throne are all the little people who can whisper in their ear, or yes. the people who are meant to protect it. If they turn their blade the opposite direction, 
person on the throne has no more power. And that's a really, I think, an un an unasked uh, predicament in a lot of series. We yeah. just assume that people would give their loyalty to someone because they're royal. Right. I've been watching uh, Witcher, so your book comes to mind a lot of that, too, for me. Don't ask me why. It just does. Um, so let's, I mean, that's a good thing. It's a compliment. Trust me, okay? Um, let's move forward in the population as far as the pop politics of the Zathian's world. How would you see, I mean, I know it's a very military background, and the, but how do the Zacian people, are, mo, are the majority of the people the military, or are there people um, in the politic reign? And how does that work? Are they just following under? I would, yeah, I would compare it, and this is going to sound like a weird comparison. I would compare it in modern day to the idea how, like, in Israel, almost every young person at some point or another is in the military. Um, it's just part of their upbringing, right? Like, I think it's like two years that they, um, have to, um, that they have to serve. Now I didn't build that into Derek High, but it's just the understanding that everyone grows up with some sort of, um, militaristic, um, uh, influence. And when they get to the age where they can decide what to do, most of them are going to go into some sort of military role because that's what the house does for the realm. Um, whereas, of course, you're going to have some people who deal with textiles and who deal with food and that sort of thing. In terms of uh, politics, their house is governed by their chieftains. And so they have what they call the war council, and they have a, um, a, a chief warlord who is Zathan's father, and he, um, he's over all the tribes. And then each chieftain from their tribe would basically have a vote, if you will, okay. um, although he pretty much <laughs> dominates the vote. <laughs> <laughs> right, I got ya. I got ya. I was just wondering, because since they basically do the military for, is it Baston, right? Am I pronouncing that right? They're in a court. Uh, Bastion. Bastion, okay. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if Bastion did um, the laws over top of uh, Der Derica. Derica. Yeah, so they do. So Bastion is, they have their own military, like they, they have their own armies, like the armies of Arinthia. So they have some people in that military structure themselves. Just those from Derek, I typically make up the majority of the ranks. Um, but Bastion is a really um, indulgent. It's like the main hub. They have the biggest population. And um, a lot of times a big population with a lot of resources becomes really indulgent when they get comfortable. And so you have a nobility in Bastion. And from that nobility, you have um, a peerage of nobility. So you have different dukes and um, earls and councilmen from different provinces. And they pretty much, yeah, oversee the overarching legislation. But each house, um, each of the outer territories of Derekai, Pilar, and Boreal, they do retain some sort of independence. So, like, once you cross into Derekai, um, rules that are made for Bastion no longer apply. Okay. Like, you're in Derekai. Derekai just happens to serve um, Bastion, if that makes sense. Yes. They still retain yes. a little bit of autonomy, and it's it's kind of, um, it's just built into their agreement. Um, now, obviously, if a king comes onto their soil, he is still king, technically. <laughs> Whether they honor that or not is uh, part of the question. Um, but in the written law, he's still king. Um, but out of respect, he is to abide by whoever rules that territory. You know, like in a normal um, fiefdom. Right. 
Okay, so as we talk about the governance, um, how does it work for titles? I know you mentioned chieftains and um, I wrote it down here and the warlords. So how does the format formalities go? How is it? Um, do they speak to one another? Is it in a high grace, a bow? Um, how what is the formalities as far as their how they greet each other and work within each other? Is there you know what I'm talking well, about? They have they have in Derekai, especially coming out of a, a military dynamic. They have um, more of a, it's like a hand gesture. They like take their fist, their right fist, and they kind of like pound it, not repetitively pound, but just like in, in a one gesture, they kind of pound it over their heart across their chest. And then there is like a little slight a bow. It's not, I wouldn't even call it a bow. It's just a slight incline. And that's just more of an affirmative, but they, in their language system, they have, um, they have some quirks to their language. And I really came up with language as a vehicle for um, just making it feel like you really know the region. Um, because that's something that I experienced back home in Michigan was when I met people who were different from me, learning a couple words and um, peppering them in was a way to feel connected to them. So that's that's why I have language is such a big role in the writing. Uh, but in their dialect, they have some little quirks uh, in their language. One being they have absolute yeses and absolute noes. So they have a normal no and a normal yes. And then they have an absolute yes and an absolute no. And that kind of changes the tone in their um, inflection at times. Um, they also have in their greetings, they have... Um, they have this old mythology about the sun and the moon and it's actually a romantic mythology but um they incorporate that into their greetings and their goodbyes um and then they also interestingly don't believe in saying i'm sorry or thank you they mm -hmm. think it they think thank you is um they don't have an equivalent in their language in andouille they think thank you is um a form of debt like a form of acknowledging debt and uh, they don't believe in I'm sorry because they think that that means that you're trying to weasel out of your actions instead of taking the consequences for them. So the language, if you if someone was to peruse the website and look at the actual glossary, you can kind of get to know a lot about their society uh, just by looking at their language, what's built in there so far and what's what's pointedly not in there. Okay. Um so as we talk about the socioeconomic classes of the Zaytheon people, you're basically, I mean, so poverty, how does that, does there poverty class within their system? They're not on the surface. So okay. he has a rival that you spend more time with and getting to know the backstory a little bit more in book two, uh, who is trying to basically come for his, his military title, his title of Alphazah over the prides. Uh, and his rival's name is Wakesa. And you learn that because Wakesa was a bastard and had no formal father, that that put a form of hardship on him growing up, um, and not only emotionally, but financially in their system. And so there's a little strip of poverty in Faraji. That's their main fortress city. And so Wakesa came out of that, which makes him very hardworking and very determined. Um, but on the surface, no, there's not necessarily classes. And that's where there's a, there is a, you, like, it's a false utopia, but a, a utopian aspect to the house that okay. everyone is expected to contribute and everyone is fed because of it. Um, there's a, this kind of um, very community minded. So they're a brutal house. They have very harsh 
um, consequences for things. Um, they, they are not afraid to um, uh, enact the, d the death penalty, but they are also very community minded. They have this sense of we claim each other and in claiming each other, I, I am claimed. My identity is claimed and staked on this ground. And so there's not necessarily uh, classes between them. They're all kind of equal, but once they find themselves, individuals find themselves in a place of power, they have a very hard time letting it go. When you talked about um, the no's and the affirmative no's and the yes, that reminds me a lot of, um, this is going to let a little bit of myself out to everyone listening, <laughs> but um, this reminds me of a lot of the uh, Korean dramas. Um, yes. Okay. Yes, it's from those cultures. <laughs> yes, it's because um, there is a way, it's, it's more in the... Tone. Yes, the, how you pronounce it, how you say it, how you influ influ influence, there we go, I'm tongue-tied, influence, yeah, I make a great uh, name <laughs> narrator. Um, yeah, the inflection, it yes. is in the inflection, but, that, but it, that's so hard to write and without being repetitive, and, you know, they said with a lilt, or like whatever I had the inflection be, that would be a lot harder to write. So I just added that little za on the end. So like absolute yes is uniza and absolute no is anoza. And that that correlates to his title being over all of the alphas of all the military prides being alpha za. So there, that za is like a, it's like an appendage of finality to right. it. And so that to me was easier than writing inflection. Okay. Well, when you, when you do the wording, and you have, I'm assuming that this type of uh, wording is in your glossary too, to explain it, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay, do you find um, that readers easily grasp, oh, I'm sorry, hold on, let me shut off that timer. <laughs> there we go. Mm -hmm. um, I, we're gonna go over just a little bit, so my apologies. Um, do you find that people are easily adapted to the glossary and are able to connect with it? Are they so drawn into the story that the glossary isn't really needed? I think it just really depends on the reader. And this is where it's a risk because at the end of the day, I have to write in a way that makes me feel connected to the world. Oh, yeah. And so I think that there are some readers who have read fantasy for so many years that if there's not a glossary, they're disappointed. Um, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if there's not a map at the beginning and a glossary at the end, something is wrong to them when they approach a book. They think that book is weak. You know what I mean? Well, uh, but then you have other readers who are just dabbling with fantasy. They're, they're just used to maps and maybe a one page pronunciation guide. So when they see my glossary, they get so overwhelmed. Um, and then there are some readers who have never read a book with a map or a glossary and they have a very difficult time. So I would say it's probably split. There are some readers who um, who muddy through the dialects uh, because they love the story so much. They end up falling in love with the world despite the clumsiness in their in their experience, the clumsiness of having to flip to the glossary and whatnot. But then there are other readers who are so uh, comfortable uh, with um, fantasy worlds and different languages and terminology that they find that by halfway through the first book, it is becoming a second language right. to them. And that was intentional in part. Um, I feel like when you travel abroad, you are expected to take a codex with you of common terms. And it's your job as the visitor to learn those those common little phrases to interact with the people in that territory. And so 
I get that most readers don't want to have to do homework. <laughs> um, but to me, that just felt like a way to make them more real right. um, and to and to differentiate between them because there's a different, this is going to sound weird, but there's a different mouthfeel between the languages. And that, that has a connotation about the people speaking those languages. And that was just another way to give more color um, and segregated color between the regions. I think the Audible book makes it even more alive. And I think the reason it does that is because it lets the dialects come through with without mm-hmm. having I'm 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 lazy. So <laughs> I kinda like that because it it makes it easier that I don't have to go to the glossary to understand what's happening by listening to your narrator and who is very well in depth. I, he is. He's very <laughs> apt to what he's doing. Um, one thing that I have learned from these interviews with you is that your work, I find myself enthralled in hearing you Aww. speak. I, I really do. Hearing you speak, I find myself enthralled more with the story than the story itself. Don't get me wrong. You're a phenomenal writer, and your world building is beyond this world. It seriously is, because these interviews say that. I mean, there is you don't pause, you don't quiver on anything. You know your worlds that you have created. <laughs> well, I mean, when you make something so complex, like... I mean, you do need to know why it's there. Yes. You know what I mean? Why yes. something is there. Right. And you're not flying by night. You truly know what you're doing. I want to thank you so very much because every one of these interviews I have found very interesting, extremely. Um, so thank you so much for partaking. And I want to yeah, thank absolutely. It's been a pleasure, to be honest. Awesome. <laughs> we'll have to step up our game for the third one. <laughs> um, so I want to thank our listeners Please, um, I'm going to put the link in the bio again. Look the book up. It it takes a lot from you, but it is worth it in the end. I, I swear. Um, it really is. It just is. And I hope that that's, don't take that as an insult because I really do not mean it no, as that. No, it's a, I tell people when they ask what kind of book it is, the very first thing that typically comes out of my mouth is it's not a beach read. <laughs> It's not. <laughs> no. I mean, again, I really see it along the Game of Thrones aspect. There is a lot, and there's a lot of depth. You you really have to pay attention because there's a bit of mystery in this book, too, that you, you know what I mean? You've really got to pay attention to the characters and what's going on with everything. So it, it is good. I'm just going to say that. It's a good book. Um, so thank you so much for coming in here. And again, like I said, very enthralled when you speak about your work. Truly am. Um, thank you everyone for coming in tonight. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now.